Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we got Eric Schmidt, head strength conditioning coach for the Memphis Grizzlies, back on to talk about levers. So Lev, Eric's a really important guy for me on this because he's the one who exposed me to a lot of the, the resources which talked about levers can't exist due to the lack of contact of the fulcrum of the moment or effort arm, as well as Doug Brignoli's physics and resistance training, which I pulled a ton of information for in designing these modules. So as you check through this, check out Eric Schmidt and his take on some things, as well as get over to the PH Podcast website to see the curriculum and the modules that tie into this. We revamped the entire thing. It's going to be a huge asset for you, the user, to kind of learn more about the specific topic, see the graphics, see the written, see all the other elements, so like case studies that go into the actual module. As well as check out Strength Deficit, the leveraging eccentric versus concentric ratios, now available for order. So as soon as you get an order, we'll get it out shipped out to you ASAP. This is gonna be your go-to resource for understanding how to utilize eccentric versus concentric training to adjust ratios to peak for a specific sport or position within that sport. Finally, realize.me, this is your go-to command center for all health and performance data tracking. This is what I use personally to track all of my data from my wearables to all my wellness, my RPE, any body comp position and then trying to create intervention as experiments. This is something I use with myself, my clients. I cannot recommend it enough as well as I do have a four-part blog series going through why this is a valuable asset for you. So check out realize.me, get on the blog, see their whole entire infrastructure. You can definitely get to really enjoy it. But without further ado, let's get Eric Schmidt on and let's talk about some levers. Eric, I want you to say uh, hello and introduce yourself uh, and go through. I mean, it's your second time on, so you're, we, everybody at this point should know who you are. But let's take a second to introduce you and go through uh, everything you got going on, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. I mean, I think you already killed the introduction with the, the, <laughs> ISO, the ISO E. It's always good when you get a uh, nickname that can stick for, you know, a few years. Has so. it stuck? I mean, does anyone around the, the building call you ISO E around there? Nah, still just, no, still just you, man. I mean, yeah. uh, but, you know, I think that that's all that matters, <laughs> that's all that matters to me. Um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't permeated, you know, this far uh, east, I guess. But yeah. you know, it'll make its way. It'll yeah, make Santa it. Barbara of the South, man. It's a great spot. <laughs> exactly. Great spot. So yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we're just about to start our our season here. It's my fourth year, which is kind of bizarre to um, you know to 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 think about. Uh, so getting excited to to get going here. Yeah, man. Uh, what's the walk me through the mirror behind you? Is that um is that from an antique or something like that, or did that come with the oh, uh, house right apartment? Here. No, to your. Uh, you are, I guess, yeah, that one. Yeah. Oh, this guy. Yeah, that's a little antique mirror. Um, it's pretty You know, just, just something nice right there above the uh -huh. fireplace. Got a few pictures. Got some propagated plants. I don't know if you could see those guys. No, I can. I can. They're great, man. Um, ferns, or I heard ferns are the best uh, at, at removing CO2 from your environment. Is that true? Uh, Is that true? Yeah, well, good. Great, great point there. Uh, they, are, they are pothos plants. Um, okay. I am a very big plant guy. Let me uh, just you give you a, a quick little rundown. You got a green thumb? Uh, Is that, walk me through a lot the of plants in here, man. Yeah. Um, as far as removing, you know, uh, stuff from the environment, cleaning the air, I think that might actually be a myth. Okay. I That's read good. that in a. I read that in a book, so obviously <laughs> it's it's fact. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But it's, I, it's I on paper, what... man. It's it's completely forever fact. That's good. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, but you know, they it just for me it it greens up the space a bit. It's not California out here, so it does get yeah. gray. So yeah. you know, just it, it makes me feel better about my about my life when I'm surrounded by some nature inside. So yeah. that's I become a crazy plant guy, man. I'm a, well, I mean, my 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 next step is to 
get a home here and I'm going to be putting some plants in there. But I heard, I heard now, obviously that was wrong, that ferns were really good at removing CO2 from the environment. But mm. wherever I, I probably didn't read that in a book. I probably read that on a blog on the internet or something. Probably so, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably where that came from. <laughs> um, so, so pothos plants, is that what we're saying? Is the, yeah. Yeah. Pothos. Well, I mean, shit, man, I got like, I got like eight varieties in this house right now. So when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, just we'll, we'll reconvene. Cause yeah, there's there's a few different varieties I really I really like. Well, uh, I mean, well pothos, like you can't kill a pothos plant. You can't do it. Like good luck. Um, is it like right there with a um, what's the cacti uh, one that you're not be able you're not supposed to be able to kill? Um, there's like a cactus that like you can't kill, but definitely we've killed it. Probably, yeah, um, yeah. We've, we've like, killed it. <laughs> you've, like, you've found a way. You're supposed to like give it water once a month, but it definitely like we've screwed that up. So we got a lot of work to do. Like our our thumbs aren't very green in the Karen household. But oh my gosh! But it goes yeah. in this it goes in this whole other thing about being a podcaster and just going into like these very very like off the main path like topics. Like if I ever go into a point where I start talking about Bitcoin or um, or psychedelics yeah. or things that are quite frankly not my expertise like that's when you know i've either run out of things to talk about or i'm just kind of like really bored and lost my marbles and for the for the podcasters out there that have left their niche and going into areas out there that quite frankly are not within their domain get back on track here you know you know, yeah, know where so you are we yeah. should probably circle back here to yeah yeah talk yeah about yeah, yeah, yeah well i mean i think that's the thing man like, like as we get to this podcast realm and my audience of like 12 right now is like i hope tim doesn't stray off what he's meant to talk about you know um <laughs> or, you know if i talk about nfts or anything like that like oh my gosh which i know zero about and like everyone can kind of go through the journey with me while i learn this but like you're not going to take financial advice from someone that doesn't have a doesn't have a home right <laughs> i mean i don't own a home i have zero i have zero assets right like why would you take financial advice from me you know um, yeah, either everybody way should. yeah exactly but i'm learning about it so therefore everyone can kind of go through the journey with me <laughs> well Call no one up. knows anything about it i don't think anybody yeah. knows what nfts are to be honest no no and i think that's the point yeah someone does and they're like laughing hysterically about how much of a joke it was you know um all right so uh back to the uh the main point here uh levers right uh we mm -hmm. we've been working through this for a couple of weeks with uh with everyone on ph and you know one of the things that is so important to understand here is most of us go through a very classic background of biomechanics and undergraduate maybe even graduate studies and a large part of that's based off of this you know mechanical lever system first second and third class levers you know i think that part right there in itself is is going to be something that's I don't think anyone's married to like, I'm a lever guy, man. Like I, I, I can't break from that. But the other part is like, it's frustrating. It's annoying to go. That's probably not true. And what does that mean going forward? Which we're going to unpack here a little bit, but hmm. you know, I want to kind of get your initial reaction. Cause we both went to Bill Hartman and I, I, we obviously can't recommend Bill enough here uh, on this podcast. Cause it's just, you're going to be exposed to so many things that you've never seen before. And you're going to be blown away by just the depth of areas that he went into that you didn't even know exist. Right. And like, mm -hmm. but he just drops in a, a very small, subtle manner of, Hey, levers can't exist in the body because bones technically aren't supposed to be in contact with each other. So mm -hmm. there's no such thing as a fulcrum. You know, what was your initial reaction to that? Cause you and I both come from an exercise science, biomechanics, 
levers are how the body moves. Like, what was your initial like, wait, wait, what? Can we talk about that a little bit more? Or was it like, no, it's quite, let's keep it rolling. Like, what was the, what was the initial impression? Yeah, I love how you have the same experience. Like, just, it just, Bill just drops so much knowledge and one like just, kind of like brushes aside this like very profound statement within a sentence that just, you know, just, yeah, this is just like what it is. Um, so like, yeah, I had to backtrack on that too. And, and I was definitely fascination and confusion about what he, uh, what he meant by that. Um, you know, cause that was my first introduction to, uh, maybe some of the fluid dynamic stuff that, that he ends up getting into and, and really like Gerald Pollock's work that talks about like these phases of water and, sort of these exclusion zones that are kind of set up between, uh, you know, kind of pushed up against like the hyaline cartilage and and are set up to kind of prevent these bones from actually getting into contact with each other and things like that. So uh, definitely wonder, fascination, confusion, uh, all the above was my initial initial reaction to that. But again, it, it goes into, like you said, of just being exposed to something that you've never, literally never thought about, never heard about. Um, and then it sort of spirals down this rabbit hole of trying to, to kind of pick the pieces back up to understand, um, you know, the implications of, of something like that. But, you know, by, by definition, it seems like if, if that is the case, then yeah, levers could not exist, um, you know, uh, technically speaking. So interesting, very interesting point. Yeah. When you brought up, you brought up Pollock of there's a whole nother rabbit hole that, you know, if you look at the traditional sense of most people never accepted the fact that this, you know, like what is non-polarized state of fluid, a more gelatinous state of fluid is just maintaining this like polarity. It's like almost a cell wall that doesn't have any like actual physical structure to it mm. in water, but like ice, vapor, water, those are always the accepted forms of fluid, right? Or H2O. And there's a fourth one and mm. Pollock is definitively shown that and like his other stuff like Gilbert Lang and some other folks out there that have really championed that and it's kind of still like in this level but there's a whole other like realm or dimension of of things that quite frankly that are profound and interesting it just it goes into this next level of like what do I do with that information right so I remember I got back from the intensive or I remember being in the airport in Indianapolis which is a beautiful airport and you're just sitting there like processing everything and I went I texted you I was like I went through it I got just exposed on what I don't know and then now what do I do and you sent back like just a very eloquent that's the point no one knows what to do after that now the work begins kind of thing Um, you know that next level of okay so let's just say that levers don't exist and Mm -hmm. Your, your idea of first, second, and third class levers, and let's say that's the reason why we program bicep curls or why we do seated calf raises over just regular calf raises, or you know why we why we focus on a knee dominant squat or hip dominant hinge. Let's say that's the reason why we program these things, right? And all of a sudden, that rationale as to why we program exercises that we do at the angles we do it, the orientation, the vectors that we do is non-existent. Does that change anything for you when you get back in your regular programming or do you need time to sit with that and process that and say, okay, I really need to appreciate this and understand this. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would need to sit back and and try to understand it before I could truly implement something that, uh, you know, that, that would eventually change the sort of the, the lens that I'm, 
um, programming training through. So I would, I would have to, to dive into that deeper and deeper to really understand that, you know, um, personally, but, you know, as soon as I, soon as I, I went to the intensive in gosh, it's been four years. I I think I went to the third one. Um, you know, and this was right before I, I moved out to Memphis, um, where part of the things that we dove into in our process, uh, were, were very much sort of based on some of the classical Newtonian mechanical, uh, principles, you know, that, that sort of led me down a, a, a deeper rabbit hole into some of the classical mechanic stuff, um, in terms of the, the biomechanics of how we evaluate things and, and train. And so, um, it sort of kind of pulled me away maybe from diving any deeper into some of the, the components I was exposed to, I guess, uh, in some ways. Right. So, so yeah, but trying to just go into the, to the, the point you just made it's for me personally i really need to try to understand something as deeply as i can before i feel the confidence to to sort of uh prescribe things through a lens that that is very novel to me and and um and yeah it would take me some time but with that being said you said hey go let's go back to newtonian physics right like you know i think there's certain elements that when you get exposed to something that's either incredibly new or novel or maybe even controversial in some ways like Go back to what you know is true, right? So we both get back to our respective settings and we have to process if this information, all right, well, I know gravity still exists. You know, I know for every reaction, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. I know that there's going to be these things that are still true. Mm-hmm. So you could take solace in knowing that, right? Like, all right, I have now new information or things that are maybe indisputable, but still hard to grasp. Uh, well, what's still true, right? And mm-hmm. you know, physics principles, principles of training, like it doesn't mean like, hey, I'm going to abandon progressive overload. It just means that, okay, maybe some of the exercises I need to look at with a different lens. But yeah, and hope maybe this helps in terms of like uh, looking at it from you know programming perspective. But did you feel anything in regards to of let me look at more of this triplanar effect and looking at hydrodynamics and Bill will talk about something like precession of, you know, fluids go down and to the left. I, you know, you said it to me too. What is the most malleable thing we have in our structure? It's the thorax. It's the, the rib cage, sternum, thoracic spine. Let's try to focus on that. Like, you know, from, and this is going to go into the constraint side of things. When you're looking at programming and looking at this triplanar, tri-vector, what is actually controllable, you know, where you're looking at maybe some of the barbell stuff or, the, hey, this would be actually a better opportunity to use a kettlebell, a front-loaded thing. Like I have a narrow guy, I have a, a wide guy. Like, you know, what were some of the evolutions now you start to look at from your traditional exercise selection and how you structure that to get more robust results right away based off of the biomechanics? Anything like change in that direction? Um, I think, I think some of that is maybe just a deeper appreciation for why things work, you know, potentially, and, and maybe getting more consistent with, uh, with your decision-making to alter some of these biomechanical components to like exercises. Um, you know, I think just the, the concept of constraints is, is really important. You know, I think from a, from a training and programming and periodization standpoint, just in general of like, you know, cause everybody does it and we may think about it differently, but ultimately we constrain the way that clients and athletes perform certain movements in order to 
you know, achieve more consistent, reliable outcomes, uh, you know, from, from an exercise selection standpoint, I think it's really important, you know? So like using heel wedges, using, you know, uh, you know, holding on to things to, to stabilize, um, you know, while we're doing exercises and things like that, like we do that naturally, every, everybody to some level does that naturally, you know? And I think that maybe just, maybe just some of the information, giving a deeper appreciation for the, the reasons why constraining things a certain way leads to a, an outcome. And I think that, that maybe is how I think about it. Um, and maybe how has influenced some of these components have really influenced the, the, the way I'm, I'm considering, you know, the biomechanic biomechanics and why things are playing out a certain way. Um, if that makes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess the question for you now would be, do you feel from a constraints-based approach, and I, I do this, and I'm so I'm speaking firsthand. I'm just wondering if it's like a universal thing of that burden of knowledge, knowing that you have this body type or this training age or this coming off an injury that they're going to suck at a certain exercise. So I'm just going to put a lot of constraints and then start to peel back the constraints as I get more information. Or is it that's just too much of a risk averse or a like a prudent thing? Like, I guess it's top down, bottom up. Like mm-hmm. you, know, you, you see that person, they're coming off injury. They're really low training age. They're just, you know, uh, uh, they're Bambi. They're walking they're baby deer and they're just, all right, I'm just going to heavily constraint this environment for this person because they're going to suck at everything I do. So I might as well give them something simple. Like I'm going to do, I'm going to do tip interior. I'm going to do calf raises. I'm going to do knee extension, knee flexion. I'm going to do shoulder flexion, shoulder extension. I'm going to do elbow flexion, elbow extension. Like this, like very, very aggressive constraints based approach to, to mm-hmm. give them something to be successful with versus let's see in a low constraint environment, them do it wrong. And then I can start to whittle it down. Like, have you thought about like, top down bottom up since that or is it hey this is a case by case i really can't make that overall classification uh yeah it's probably it's probably case by case at some level but i think you can probably make some uh there is some level of like uh systemizing that process you know because i think that in in terms of constraining things you're you're looking for i think the bottlenecks within within the uh the execution of whatever task you're kind of prescribing right and so because if you think about like movement is a is a problem solving endeavor in general right so like if we're if we're asking somebody to squat or hinge or whatever like we're, we're basically asking them to solve a problem and then when we when we coach the execution of that we're constraining the outcomes or the solution to the problem in a way where we're asking them to demonstrate proficiency with certain elements of how they perform the task. And if they can't do it, then I think that's where we, we start to like double click on why, you know, and that's where it can take you down a couple different rabbit holes. Um, you know, they could not have potentially the, the joint, spaces to support the ability to get into a certain position. So if my ankle can't dorsiflex past 15 degrees, you know, or whatever, 10 degrees, good luck getting like an astagrass squat, like just good luck. Like you can't, they cannot demonstrate the joint position to get into 
the bottom of that of that squat, maybe the way that you might ask them to uh, to do that. So then you would have to add certain things to support their ability to demonstrate that. But, you know, the more supports you have, I do think you probably want to look into why you would need to support them to be able to demonstrate that, because, you know, the more variability and I say that with air quotes because, you know, who knows what that really means. But ultimately, the more solutions they have to a problem, you know, it seems to be the better off that that uh, that that client or athlete is in terms of their health and their performance. And so um, I think it is a top down, bottom up. I think you you constrain things to get the outcomes as uh, consistent as possible to the task. And so if you're asking them to, to, to demonstrate strength in a squat exercise, then you probably want to minimize the, you know, the cost on that. And so put them in a position to be successful, to demonstrate, uh, to demonstrate the exercise in a way that, again, they're not you know, banging up their joints or, or getting unnecessarily stiff and sore um, and then progressively overload that in a way that is, you know, intelligent, um, but maybe unpeel that a bit and figure out, well, why do I need to constrain this so much? You know, what is underneath this that I may be using other tactics to support and how do I sort of get at the heart of improving those so that I can begin to remove some of these uh, constraints and some of the more emergent things that that we're trying to again, just train for or whatever. So I think it, it goes in both directions, but I think the constraints led approach is super valuable because it just, it, it focuses on getting to the heart of, of the why, you know? Um, and that to me is, is what is the most interesting when it comes to training. So I do love the use of air quotes too, by the way. I think it's an amazing, yeah. Uh, yeah it's hopefully an amazing. People, people listen to this, they're like, well, I just, you know. Yeah, air quotes are such a Yeah, it's such an amazing <laughs> social phenomenon, you know. Like, I don't believe this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how many times do you think Bert Gambetta has done air quotes? Like, functional, oh functional. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry for my burn fans out there. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I defaulted. I can imagine Bernga better doing that with Mike Boyle's getting tons of traction. You know, functional guys, you know? Um, sorry, sorry. Um, I got back on track. <laughs> you, you mentioned, and we'll put the video out here on this too. I like to like, get these videos. So everyone's going to see the beautiful aesthetic you have behind you. And um, I have to blur my background. So my aesthetic is not there yet. Yeah, so. your head shape changes every time you move, which is I great. Know, I know. Yeah. You know, just bobbing and weaving here. Enjoy that, YouTube. Um, you mentioned a really good term there, throughput. Um, or a bottleneck. And, you know, when first thing I hear about bottleneck is think about the goal and Elijah Goldrat and talking about throughput. And But you, you, you said it and hey, what is the goal of this, right? What are we trying to accomplish this? And I think that inventory early on of what am I trying to do with this? Like, what, why am I doing this exercise in the first place? What was the functional need of any of this, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's it's I, I like to distill it down to like all right from a performance standpoint it's going to go three three filter or three vectors of like force velocity or work um, from a gen pop or I mean in a lot of times of athletic performance setting but like body compositional do you want to gain lose or maintain but improve your body composition one way or the other so if I want to gain fat or I'm gain muscle or lose fat you know that dynamic but like again getting down to the root ultimate outcome like what is the true north here and what is the throughput as gold rat would say and then from there you go if it's something as simple as just gaining muscle 
Mm-hmm. Right? Not saying that's simple to do, but it's a, a very simple outlet or a very simple throughput. And mm-hmm. you go from there, like, all right, what's the most linear path there? I need to create tension in this area from a repeated exposure standpoint. You kind of get some sort of like validation to do a higher constraint approach, right? Like if you look at the, the best models to create muscle, it's going to go down to bodybuilding and championing the message of machine-based stuff. And I think it's a perfect segue to get to our boy Doug side of the things of, you know, rest in mm-hmm. peace, obviously. Um, yeah, crazy. Yeah, I mean, it goes into this whole thing of, I wish doing anabolic steroids for a period of time is probably not healthy, um, but yeah. you look great um, either way. Um, I digress. When we talk about, though, creating mechanical tension in certain parts of the body to get this direct output, you know, one, one of the things that I think is, so important. I remember you first got to where you're at is, hey, why don't we use more machines in training? Like, well, it takes up a lot of space. It's very simple mm-hmm. use. It's it's very inefficient when we're training groups and and we have a plethora of athletes who got to work through and we're having to check a lot of boxes in a short period of time. Machines are really challenging from that area. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then expose this other element of like, where are the weak spots within our programming? Where's the bottlenecks? Where are the elements that we just simply are going to come up short time and time again from yeah. multi-joint free weight close kinetic chain exercises well you know we find it all the time right like maybe maybe hamstring or maybe calf or you know maybe certain smaller synergistic or not big global muscle movement or movers like the things that we're getting with squat hinges pushes and pulls mm-hmm. and it leads into this like other area or this person's a narrow and he has a hard time putting on muscle mass in this specific area or mm-hmm. you know this person's just heavily quad dominant and they're going to have a hard time recruiting hamstrings during hanger or unless we directly overload knee flexion or vice mm-hmm. versa right this yeah. person's very hip dominant and they're going to have a hard time putting on quadricep muscle and you know i remember that was the big point where you talked about with isolation exercises like mm-hmm. we have these limitations with exercises and we see this manifest with a lot of our athletes have a massive atrophy or not a lot of development in areas like specifically the quadricept and that gives me validation to do terminal knee extensions or overloaded knee extension so going into that Mm -hmm. and you read physics of resistance training which you actually exposed me to um you're the one who told me about that book which Mm -hmm. i was like all right this is profound um and i'm really happy i went into that because it it changes the paradigm again right gets back into classic mechanics of we have this information in the back of our mind of oh levers don't exist and there's no point even thinking about machines ever again because that's all lever based but what it does is artificially creates a lever to create more tension in that muscle so you know with that being said is you know you have your throughput or your outcome you want and you're now looking at i'm here and i want to get there and you have a great setup where you have every angle and every joint that you can overload with the machine you know now how are you are you doing a like a body composition are you doing a just strength testing are you doing a like just overall like this is my instinct here like this person needs to develop this area based off of their body type how are you now addressing like when and where to use certain machines to get to that direct output that's a great question man um uh, probably a few different ways. I think I, I would say relying on as much uh, valid and reliable objective testing as possible is very helpful to sort of drive you down some of these roads because I think one of the most interesting things that that 
you know, I've sort of come around to in the last few years of having access to very uh, specific isolated machine work is just this understanding that like, if somebody doesn't, well, if you're building a training program based upon, you know, more these more integrated uh, multi-joint compound movements, I think that is still the way to go. Um, you know, because it is the most efficient way to train the body in the sense of you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck out of those exercises. There seems to be better components of like, just if, if athletes are well-trained in the main, you know, uh, big patterns, um, it's just a good quality full body program, you know, but I think if you're real about things um, in terms of really trying to, to measure and understand where some of those, these bottlenecks come from. Cause let's be real. Like everybody can't just, you know, front squat beautifully and deadlift beautifully and RDL beautifully. And like these things just don't typically happen. We don't see this uh, with, uh, with, you know, any sort of group uh, setting that I've ever been. I've never seen these beautiful movers that have these great strength uh, ceilings and all this stuff. So it's like, if you're real about it and you start looking into those constraints, like you said, and maybe doing some of this objective testing, you realize that there are certain bottlenecks within the process or with <clears throat> within the chain that are uh, specific to certain tissues. And if you bring those tissues up, then you actually see better translation into some of the integrated tasks. And to me, it's been like, I guess the last few years have kind of come full circle in a sense of under, really understanding that because actually being able to measure that was something I was never able to do, you know? And so having now the ability to look at things through a little bit more of a microscope um, and, and really see where these constraints are, not just in terms of like just a general impulse demand, but like where within the joint motion does that impulse uh, you know, is that individual unable to meet the impulse demands of the task. And so you can actually get to like these very nitty gritty uh, constraints and then being able to use the machines to build those up seems to be the most effective way because it'd be nice to, you know, say like target a hamstring in an RDL, but if somebody doesn't have hamstring strength, you know, it's, it's, I, I just haven't seen people be able to lift that particular component of, of, uh, that bottleneck up by using some of these more integrative tasks, because ultimately what you're doing when you integrate those is you're just finding a different solution to complete the exercise, you know? So you might be utilizing a different, uh, you know, different tissues to express whatever impulse that you need to, to be able to complete that task. So I guess it comes down to the things that lead me there the most are probably some of the objective testing that, that we do. Um, you know, those sort of lead me to the machines the most. Um, or like you said, like if there's just some, a ton of constraints, they're all over the place. You know, uh, these these machines seem to be very useful to just get people into positions to express uh, strength, you know, force in some in some fashion that helps us kind of build up, um, you know, build up some some tissue resilience and and just some training volume. So that's sort of, I guess, where long winded answer to say, like, I think the testing helps, you know, and so I think if, if you have access to it, you it, it's helped me learn and understand what works and what doesn't work. And I've realized that some of the interventions that I used to use definitely would not work to actually get at the heart of what I was trying to change, you know, and I think it required a, a deeper level of precision via some of these machines, to be honest. Yeah. You know, my, my, uh, we got a little Oscar back here. My, my, um, 
uh, my Roomba going crazy. Let me turn this guy off real yeah. quick. Classic Roomba, man. Mine doesn't just have a mind of its own. Uh, so uh, can you still hear me? I got you. There we go. Okay. So you mentioned something really interesting. Like athletes are going to find a solution, right? That, and we've gone through this with pretty much every screening model is the better athlete, the better the compensator, right? Like they, mm. they yeah. will find the strategy to meet the projected or the expected outcome, right? Like mm-hmm. stand up, right? Like that's, that's the outcome we want. Like, so go down and then stand back up and like, they're thinking, okay, I just got to get back up. Right. And however means necessary, which, which creates like a, a variable like process, right. They might get a very hingy squat or a very, mm-hmm. you know, like rounded back squatty deadlift, whatever, like bad outcome, but they'll find a way. And the better they are, the better they are finding strategies within those, that like task environment. So that's something that you have to be really cognizant of because the areas that you're trying to develop from these exercises that we select are not going to be a direct one-to-one from the time we spent in, right? So it's activity versus accomplishment. And Mm -hmm. they've accomplished a task. They stood up, they've gotten to that finished position. Just the process between start and end was not what we wanted to get that targeted outcome. Right. And, right. And as you start to really break it down and you're thinking about it, like, well, what was the point of a squat? Like, well, yeah, I really want to develop quadricep muscle. Right. And, uh, and we've evolved from, you know, movements, not muscles, but then again, too, the reason why we're doing those movements is to train the muscles associated with it. So <laughs> movements, not muscles, but the muscles that we're trying to train, we want to train and we should be able to understand what muscle that, uh, that, that exercise was trying to target. Right. And like no one's sitting there saying that a, a front squat is a total body exercise that's systemically working every muscle in the body. You know, it's, Hey, I really want to develop the tissues on the front part of that upper thigh. Like that would be ideal, right? Like that's kind of the point, right? And well, if I want to complement that with structural balance, I need to train the tissues on the backside of that thigh. So, you know, RDLs, but if they're really rounded back and they're dropping their knees, are they really working their, their hamstrings and their glutes? Like probably not. So it goes into this level of if you're choosing these exercises off of, hey, I'm just training movement patterns and you completely disassociate from the muscles and that are trying to create tension in or create some sort of physical adaptation in, whether it's, hey, they're coming off an ACL and they need to create, train these decelerators, or, hey, we did a, we did a ACL reconstruction and we took part of the hamstring off and we're trying to strengthen that muscle group to make it more resilient or they have previous hamstring tears. And we're training these patterns and they're not directly stressing those tissues that are gonna help that athlete be more resilient or just quite frankly, more functional or capable. Mm-hmm. we're kind of missing the point of the exercise in the first place. And then again, I go to of like, man, I wish there was a tool that I could just target those tissues to strengthen that area while I train these big global movement patterns. God, I wish that existed, right? Like I wish there was a mechanism to do that on a, in a safe and constraint laden environment to directly address this area that's just not clicking with these mm-hmm. big global movement patterns. I wish someone came up over the past 50 years of some sort of tool that could directly target certain muscle groups that can help me address these big, big gaps in my programming. Oh, wait, that's right. Machines have been created well in advance to answer that question a long time ago. Bodybuilders are just in their garage doing overhead press, squats, deadlifts, didn't 
look a certain way because they were physically not creating adaptation in certain muscle groups. Let me create a machine or an apparatus to target the tissues there. Let me understand where the origin insertion is. And let me try to bring the insertion closer to the origin and try to create as much tension in between point A to point B as possible. Mm-hmm. That's where pectex came from. That's where, that's where CD calf raises came from. That's where forearm curl machines came from. And granted, it could go overkill in a lot of areas of machines, sure. targeting everything from your uh, finger flexors to your uh, tip anterior, et cetera. But, you know, the areas that we see, and it's an amazing thing to think about too. Like if you look at the pendulum swing in the Renaissance of something like a tip bar, right? And, you know, the ATG system, like bringing a lot of that stuff to the light, like it's just been a neglected area for so long, mm-hmm. right? Like who's been working tip anterior for <laughs> the last 25 years, right? And like, oh, there's an inherent huge gap from everyone just squatting and lunging and hinging. Like we're not training any of the anterior part of the lower leg uh-huh. ever, right? Yeah. And you see these yeah. like shin splints and these like Achilles tears, whatever it is, but like, no one's doing that in the performance setting or wasn't. Yeah. And like, yeah. it's just, Hey, here's, there's gaps and they're, they're, they're screaming at us, but yet like, we're just kind of naive to the fact because we just myopically focus on these big movements because they're so much more efficient and it answers so many questions and it checks so many boxes and our limited time or limited resources and our limited everything in a team setting. And you're like, just fucking squat, hinge, lunge, push and pull. And you'll, you're good. You're, like you, you can't fuck that up and then you know like ah well it's just a cost of doing business guys break down in season it is what it is and like mm-hmm. and you start to see what now you have a lot more resources to look at like wow we have some serious serious dif- discrepancies and deficiencies in certain areas mm-hmm. and, I, and i have the tools and the resources to directly fix it and it'd be dumb not to now my question to you off of that though is mm-hmm. it, you go back in the team setting and now you're the burden of knowledge you know that that you know you have inherent shortcomings, you know, what are you doing to close that gap with a, a lot larger group that you have to work with and a lot less time to do that in? Uh, well, I guess I, I just have a better appreciation for maybe understanding why somebody might be able, might not be able to perform uh, a certain task. You know, I just, I feel like there are ways to, to look at this without, the technology, you know, that, it, that we're using. Um, I just know that the technology is helpful to get to the, get on track to, to towards the solution, maybe a little bit easier, but I still think there's, there's ways to incorporate um, some evaluation to look at, you know, maybe a constraint that somebody might, might have. And then, you know, if I'm in a team setting where I don't have access to the same, machines or I don't have that, you know, those are machines are just helpful solutions. But ultimately, like when you're doing a knee extension machine, for example, you're just training the extensor mechanism, you know, task and you're just constraining, you're constraining the task so much that you're basically removing the variability of the system so that you have more confidence that you're targeting what you think you're targeting. And so you can do that without that machine. Yeah, there you go. There's more. <laughs> you can do that without the machine though. You know, you can, you can set up a exercise uh, task and ask an athlete to perform it a certain way um, to do that. That's what like that, that knees over toes guys does, right? He like sets up constraints within the exercises so that you have like basically one way to, succeed or not succeed with how you perform um the movement and so i think that that i would probably just need to consider what those 
progressions are and how I would maybe evaluate things differently. But, um, but yeah, I, I would, I would have to do it that way because I, I just think the machines just help you get to those, get on track towards a solution as quickly as possible and probably as efficiently as possible. If we're defining that by kind of how Brignoli would define it, which is you're just, you're, you're able to put a high percentage of effort specifically towards the tissue that you're trying to, to make changes to, you know? Um, so that's maybe how I would, how I would try to approach that. And it would be sort of unique potentially to what type of athlete we're working with or client, um, you know, but I think there, there's ways that we've, we, we've done this in certain spaces. It's just harder with, to target certain tissues without machines. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we were able to do like certain hamstring constrained exercises without a, you know, prone or seated leg curl machine. You know what I mean? Like we figured out how to do that. Um, so, but yeah, maybe for other tissues, it's, it's more challenging. So uh, you just have to get creative, I think. Well, I think it's exposure to different environments. So I'm sure there's been situations where you're on the road and you know, getting, yeah. getting the adequate stress on that tissue or that pattern or that mm-hmm. joint is hard without the tools you have at home. So like, all right, what's the solution here? Exactly. Uh, and, and then other models of like, all right, well, you know, there's, there's pretty cool systems out there like functional range conditioning that I think close a lot of gaps for creating tension in certain muscle groups or areas with limited resources. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can create tension in, in the, quadricep muscle, like going back to Brignol stuff, as long as I understand the origin insertion, what's the mechanical advantage, disadvantage, and how do I create as much tension getting that muscle group or getting that, that line of pull perpendicular to gravity is going to create tension in that muscle group. So how do I do that? Let's just put them in this position versus that position. Let's bring this joint angle from here to there. Let's either give some direct either manual resistance or just getting them as close as they can to their passive end range and saying, create, just lift or hold or resist me or whatever other mm-hmm. like thing in your mind. But like you're thinking you got a group, you got 20 people in front of you, you know, that person over there is going to be weak in their hamstring. This person over here is going to be weak in their quad. And you're like, all right, we're going to squat. We're going to RDL. I'm probably need to complement that with either maybe a direct protocol, like a pre-fatigue or post-fatigue, or maybe I just do another exercise entirely, or maybe I let them go through the entire program and saying, hey, you're going to go this supplemental work at the end, or hey, we're going to focus on this in the movement prep, because I know we just collectively, we're going to do this, you know, shotgun blast approach of everyone's going to need stronger quads and hamstrings. So, you know, we're going to recruit this more, or we're just going to teach them how to create tension here before we get to this pattern and hope that it has a residual effect. And, you know, the, the nuance of working within a group setting and having that, that back of your mind thought of like, is this enough is a hard thing to, to bear. Right. And on the other end, it's, people always talk, Oh, I would love to be in your shoes. I'm only going to work about a couple athletes. Like the allocation of times I'm just spread out over 500 people. You're spread out mm-hmm. over five people. And like, yeah. you're probably still putting in as much work, if not more work. You just have the, you have the actual, the harder process to, to like get pedantic and get like really in the weeds on certain things. And I have to be like, very, very like, all right, this is what we're doing. And I know there's shortcomings, but this is going to be the the most linear path to get 500 people better yeah. today. Yeah. And you're like, I have to pick the most direct in the other end. It's, 
I find it really challenging to have unlimited time and unlimited resources to go, I can do anything. And you could just, you could become overly critical and overly like just micromanage yourself. Like, well, we could do this, but we should be here. And you could just beat yourself up over that process. And man, it's, it, I got to stop you there. Cause like you, <laughs> you, you say things that I'm just like, man, you hit on like where my brain has gone when I reflect on the different environments I've been in so well. And like, I was, Julie and I, girlfriend, Julie and I were just talking about this, um, this very concept that you're hitting on right now, uh, uh, like a month ago, just in terms of like, she was asking me how, like my job now must be easier than it used to be because of the resources and the time and this stuff. And I was like, honestly, it's, it's, it's different kind of hard, but intellectually it's the most, it's the most challenging role I've been in because of those things. Like I no longer have the like satisfaction of not knowing something in some ways. Again, there's always things you're not going to know. Let's be real. But I'm saying like with certain resources and certain abilities to be able to, uh, to really, again, double click on these problems, look for the actual bottlenecks and sort of like remove the placebos like fully from, from my process, because I, I, you just, you can't, when you start looking at these things under these microscopes, it just, it, it forces your decision-making to be so precise and so hopefully accurate to actually determine if you're making a change. And most times you fail, man. Like most times you're just like, Oh, like that should work. It didn't work, you know? Um, and so it, it require it's required a different level of appreciation for that. Like you said, the, the pedantic nature of all this, like really diving into the nuance in a way that is, is really, uh, it's been the most exciting, um, for me at this point, at this point in my career, right. Would have said something different 10 years ago, but at this point in my career, because of, because of that, like you can't run from the outcomes, the feedback loops are pretty tight, you know? So it's like, and, and it's given me a different level of appreciation for what works and what doesn't work. And this has sort of led to some of the things we're talking about today. Like, why do you even include some of these, some of these options for training? Like why have any machines at all ever, you know, like there, can you work without them? And it's like, maybe, but we've found that the things that need cleaning up are best served on certain pieces of equipment that help us get to those solutions quicker. And that's been reinforced by actually measuring and, and remeasuring certain things and being able to, to track these changes, you know, and without them, we were not able to maybe be as successful or it would take in a lot longer and things like that. So it's a, uh, I feel like you always do such a great job of just like knowing where my, like what spirals in my brain about uh, just thinking about the different environments, because like you've been in these environments too, you know, and it's, it's maybe one of the unique things of like the problems are, I guess the same, but maybe the solutions can be a little bit different. And the the challenges are, uh, are unique in some ways, just considering, you know, having more resources, both from the things that we're using to measure, but also the people, you know, and just having people and, and being able to have a 20, 30 minute conversation about a very, nuanced uh variable you know and like what do we do with that um so yeah sorry sorry to to no, that's great you know, kind uh, of tangent that but it, it's 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 really uh it's really true well and i think most people aspire to be where you're at and you know like it's it's amazing and it's you should be super proud of where you're at but it doesn't change the circumstance you're in it's still really challenging and difficult and frustrating and doesn't mean you don't appreciate what you have and you're not thankful for the opportunity, but there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this go, I would love to have what that guy has. 
But the thing that's so important for most of these listeners out there to really understand is it's still going to be met with a lot of challenging aspects, a lot of frustration and a lot of things that, quite frankly, you have no idea of, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes kind of syndrome of mm-hmm. the, the inherent things. And the other gift that we have in these like chaotic, you know, running the gun in like I'm another cup of coffee, another hundred athletes coming through in the next 45 minutes. Like, you know, that environment is and this is such a, a really important thing to go back through, too, is like checklist manifesto of like what is what are the rules here? What are we, we absolutely have to do? You know, and I just on one level, did they start on time? Did they get all their sets and reps? Did they lift it with the technique that we think is adequate? And if they can't, what's your plan B? What's your contingency? And then did they finish it without getting hurt? Maybe even having a, a good time and enjoying the training process, right? Like, you know, these like hardline rules that you have with your staff, right? Like, hey, you set the reps, lift a good technique, make some sort of progression. Did we do that collectively with 100% of our people every day? That's a win. Yeah. It's a huge win. Now, yeah. on the other micro level, it's like with our private training clients that coming off of rehab have very specific goals. Did they do all their sets and reps? Did they lift with good technique? Did they make some sort of progression? Absolutely. Great. That's a It should be easier, right? It's sometimes mm-hmm. not. But what will get in the way of that with a large group versus a smaller group or just one person in generally is essentially you in that person, that process of like convoluting it and making it really problematic. And like, you can't make a progression if you're changing every time because you're overthinking it mm-hmm. or in the fly that this, like, this isn't working. We're ditching this and I'm going to move on to plan B way too quickly and not letting them go through the process of, I just need to warm up a little bit longer or, uh, Hey, I just, I didn't grasp what you were saying. And I, it clicks now, right? Like whatever mm-hmm. that thing of you getting in the way of that, overly like just critical of yourself of the person in front of you like you know that hard rule like what is your checklist when you go into a session how do you define success and from a large group to a small group it should be probably very similar but you have to understand the limiting factors from a small group and a large group the large group is like you're just not controlling the room enough you're not asserting yourself as the alpha you're not whatever you have to do to make sure that that group is moving in a like like a continued stream of things versus that small group just don't get in the way too much right don't yeah don't don't fight yourself too hard on this isn't going good like i, I just fuck it we're going another we're going to go a whole other direction like we're just going to stretch your foam roll because you can't fucking do this like <laughs> follow the plan you know like you know like and, and i think that's the part like you know it, it really resonated with me the line from checklist manifesto of like uh, Judges were making really bad decisions right before lunch because they're hungry. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like that's yeah. – and like how often we're doing that, right? Like how often we're doing that in coaching. Like you coach for four hours straight and you're just fucking burnt out. You're going on four hours of sleep. How many bad decisions are we making yeah. in that last group of that morning yeah. shift, right? And like, all right, well, what are our rules here? Like how I'm going to tell you you're successful is these three things, right? And like mm-hmm. if we can do that, we're great. And if we can go above and beyond that, Awesome. I am so happy you did that. If you can't meet that, then I got to find ways to either get you a break or uh, structure the day differently or structure the session differently or simplify. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I think that part is, you know, thank God for all these amazing resources to have like this peace of mind of, you know, someone who's a, a brain surgeon versus someone working in ER in India. Like, hey, I'm working with millions and one people with a bunch of different problems and I got to be the answer for everything. Yeah. You know, isn't that the same in our, like you versus me right now? Like I have a million people coming in with a million different problems. I just need to distill it down to what can I do for this person versus 
you have unlimited potential to help every problem for that one person. Just what is really effective and what's really beneficial for you. And like, yeah. And it's, it's like, thing. It, yeah, no, it's, it's it definitely powerful. And it's also just like, you know, just being able to like measure something doesn't solve the problem. Like the interventions solve the problem. So you still, you know, and I think some things that are, that I found more challenging is like when you have this, this list that's pretty exhaustive about like, Oh, there's like, there's 15 things blinking red here. Like, which one do I start with? You know, what do I actually work on? You know, um, because that sort of like weighing the options that you have is really, is really important too. But when you have, again, some of these, when you're able to measure some of these things, it's like, Oh, there's a lot of things going on. What do I, what do I do? But again, realizing like the technology is not going to solve your problem at all, like at all, like you actually have to then go back to your X's and O's, right? Your prescription units of exercises, your sets, your reps, your progressions, and sort of manage the chaos along the way and be able to actually prescribe things in a way that leads to a successful outcome. So it's like, it, it it's, it's not it's not as simple as like, Oh, I just find the problem. You know, it's like, no, the, the solutions to the problem are still, it's the same things. And I think your experiences and your, your knowledge and your expertise just helps you make better decisions. And I always say, I think the best indication of intelligence is the decision-making that you do. You know, it's like, why did you make that decision as a coach? You know, and that's how personally I'm, that's how I think about like looking at, uh, an intelligent coach is this their decision-making process. And it, to me, it gets down to like, when you start eliminating options because you have an understanding of what's not, what, what this person is coming to the table with, you start eliminating options, meaning you're not going to use this exercise progression. You're going to use that exercise progression, meaning you're going to prescribe your volumes and intensities with this specific prescription unit versus that one, you know? And I think like when you actually get a, get coaches who really get to that level of, of decision-making to me, that is the most, that's the biggest sign of intelligence, but ultimately that's only also reflective on your retest, right? So like what, what changes did you actually make? Cause you can make all those decisions and potentially get a bad outcome. You know, I think of like the Annie Duke, uh, her thinking and bets book, right. Where it's like, this is like poker. Like you can have, you know, pocket aces and then lose, you know, to a, to a two seven, you know, just because that's life, you know? So it ultimately comes down to hopefully you made good decisions. And I think over a long enough period of time, you will be able to determine if you were uh, more successful or not, I guess. So, um, well, that's so. the part that most people never really follow through of the post-test or the, the debrief of did this or did this not work. And I think that's the scariest part, right? Where it's like, mm, yeah. you, know, you have a lot of belief in your process to come to some sort of conclusion on intervention and then you work your ass off the intervention. And then it's that like, I don't want to look at my bank account, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> I just don't want to yeah. look at it because yeah. I know the truth of like, you know, like in your heart, you can convince yourself of anything, but the, the actual objectivity of like, if it was marginal improvement, would that be dejecting? It's still improvement or sure. yeah. profound and you feel like this certain sense of like, overconfidence with how good you are and then the other part if it was a colossal yeah. failure and you're like oh man like i suck i'm not full of everything I, I just screwed this all up you know like that yeah. that post part i think takes the most courage as the coach yes yes you know, no matter what and, and the most humility too to like not overly give yourself credit it could just been the perfect thing of the guy stayed all summer and he was focused on this it was a contract year so your intervention was probably amplified in its 
its response, um, no which, which is like, you can easily say I'm the best that's ever, th- ever happened. And, uh, and like that process too, is like where you as a coach or anyone has responsibility for deciding what we're doing from a training stress standpoint is has to take this so seriously of a scientific approach of, you know, the, the whole process, you know, start mm-hmm. middle and end is equally as valuable and how you process that of like not devaluing the beginning, not, uh, not becoming overly wrapped up in the middle and not avoiding or neglecting or like just trying to ignore, you know, that end part and learning from each phase equally and saying, this is all mm-hmm. critical in itself, but yeah. um, really well said, man. Really thanks, well. Man. Yeah, well, appreciate that. You know, you know, the, the <laughs> <laughs> hey, really well said. scientifically, <laughs> scientific programming. Um, so I want to close here with, you know, just this idea of, now appreciation for i guess levers and you know one of the things i tried to get across in our module was like it's still a model and all models are wrong but some are useful and it's a great way to learn you know why certain things are mechanical advantage and disadvantage and why certain angles might be more difficult than others you know and looking at it from these like principles like you know as a coach walking away from this conversation and you know it's probably all of us leaving the intensive of like Am I better? Am I worse? Is this is this like where is this going to lead to down the road? Of you know, what do you think is like the message? And you were so good with me on this of like not like getting me like because you know the initial response to like getting this you know like you just took the green pill and like all right here's your reality like you know where do you think a coach should go next of like hey sit with this try to understand this try to digest this like or like hey, just go to why everything you're doing and inventorying is this the best I could possibly do in this given moment. What do you think is like the, the thing that helped you in that process, maybe post-intensive, post-physics or resistance training to like, you know, stick that next proverbial step? Yeah, I think we you kind of actually just touched on it uh, in, in what you were saying, what you were speaking on um, before, which is just really like, I think really trying to evaluate your decisions the best way possible. Um, you know, and I think that comes from, I think that comes from measuring things, right? I think we have to have some form of, of measurement to kind of anchor us to some reality in what we're doing. And that measurement comes from some form of testing. Um, and some testing might be better than others, you know, in terms of its validity and reliability and measuring what you're actually trying to measure. Um, and if you have access to, the most uh the the highest fidelity of information from your testing i think it gives you a good a good platform to then use as like the anchor for your interventions you know work through a period of time retest but then the most critical piece which you just hit on was like be real and embrace the vulnerability of your your outcomes you know because Yes, we work in a, you know, humans are really, they're complex adaptive systems. We got, you know, task organism environment. We got all these things that, you know, come into play. Um, It's not as simple as you just like a machine where you just like put this input in and then you get this output out. It's, it's not like that, but ultimately you're trying to, to have repeatable outcomes. And I think you need to be anchored to reality and reality is going to be anchored to some form of testing. And then you just really got to embrace and try to understand, uh, try to dig into why you got certain outcomes. Why did certain ones work and why did certain ones not work? And I think 
this this leads to humility because I think that the, the coaches I resonate with the most are probably the most humble because they're the ones who actually go through that process and are real about it, you know? And I think when I say real about it, if somebody knows all the answers, they're full of shit, you know, because there are, there isn't one answer that, that works, you know, for anything that we do. And if you're real about your outcomes, you're not, you ain't batting a thousand here. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're not getting the results uh, 10 times out of 10 um, that you're looking for, you know? And I think it's really diving into the complexities of why, why did you not get that result? You know, what could you have done differently when you look at your decision-making at the time, what information was unavailable to you that led you to make a certain decision that ultimately didn't reach the outcome that you wanted. And how do you actually evaluate that and say, Hey, you know, a month ago, I didn't have this information. I needed that information to make a better decision. So from now on, that is going to be included in my process. I'm going to add that piece. And then, hey, you know, six weeks later, you have another bad outcome. What information did you not have at that point that you needed to add? And I think this is where you start just expanding your list of things that are very important to be able to evaluate um, or get better at. And it just sort of kind of, it's this continuous process. And I think this is how your learning can really be expedited is just really looking into your outcomes and trying to make sure that you're measuring things the best way that you can and just embracing your failures as much as possible. And, and just kind of like, just, it's just that, you know, it's that cycle of learning, right. It's, it's, it just repeats and repeats and repeats. So I think you said it probably way better than I just said it there, but that's just, I think the process man um, is, is that. All right. So you heard it uh, work hard. Be real and uh, test your work, man. You know, always try. Oh. Yeah, test it, man. Just yeah, yeah and, and just and be nice, man. I had someone one of our um, one of yeah. our one of our employees left and went to grad school for um, he's going to do research for uh, uh, I think chemistry. And he's like, you got any advice? I'm like, just work hard and don't be a dick, man. That's pretty much it, man. And he's like, that's it. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much it, man. I can tell you two things. Just work hard and don't be a dick. And he's like, that's it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, like I, at this point, I think that's it. Like I really do. Um, yeah. Just be nice and just work hard. You know, like if, if you can do those two things, everything else kind of falls into place. Um, yeah. You know, you know, yeah. my, pe my people don't work hard and you might be meet people who are a dick. You know, it is what it is. Like they're just <laughs> the way it goes, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and he's probably like, I don't know if that's sage wisdom or you're just passing the buck and you don't really want to give me a solid answer. Like, that's my answer in the moment. You know, I haven't yeah. tested and retested it, but right now it seems to make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah. But uh, no, man, I honestly, I appreciate this. This was uh, cool. And uh, you're a big part of this for me because you're the one who kind of like exposed that these concepts and these things to me. And like, we've kind of had this great rapport of going back and forth of like, um, is it okay? I don't really fully grasp this or understand this. Like, I think so. Like, I think it's okay. And that's, I think that's part of the process. And I, I think collectively we can all say that, you know, I know I'm better for it. Um, I don't know what tangible thing I'm better at, but I know that like, I appreciate things in a different light and I have a, a healthy respect for, again, what I, again, I, it's possible to say I know or don't know, right? Like, yeah. you know, and like there's people like Bill out there, there's people like Doug, there's people other like, you know, entities and and things and systems that are going off this body of knowledge that's just either not available to us or not well understood at this point. And, sure. yeah. and you just you put your filtering hat on and saying, is this going to help me adhere? Like, is this information that's going to be, you know, one, understandable, digestible, and 
and we left the intensive and I just raised my hand. I'm like, what if we don't understand any of this? You know, <laughs> and I started like a 15 minute like diatribe between the group of like, oh, that's actually a good question. Like, what do we do if we don't understand it? And Bill was very kind and patient. Like, it'll, it'll make sense over time. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, like the Padua, like we're just like getting this like thing, then it's going to grow into this you know, beautiful fern that's not going to remove that much CO2 in our environment, but oh my gosh, it's going to be beautiful. Way to bring that back. Yeah. (laughs) Way to bring that back. (laughs) Unbelievable. Circle's complete there. What a pro. (laughs) Um, That's what they call closure right there. They do. Well, I appreciate you, Eric, and uh, thank you for taking the time, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Always fun. Awesome, man.